Please turn in your Bibles today, today to the book of Colossians. And in your pew Bible, you can find where we are on page 1,833. I'm in Colossians chapter 2, going into chapter 3. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to preach on verses 16 all the way to chapter 3, verse 4. This chapter break where it begins chapter 3 is probably not a really a good place to put the chapter break. Um, the theme of Paul here, you know, when Paul wrote the Bible, he didn't write the chapter and the verse. The chapters and the verses came hundreds of years later whenever scribes would put the chapters and the verses. When Paul first wrote this, it was just one big long letter. So this is why we can make discretion and decisions about where is the best to put the chapter break. So let me read verses chapter 2, verse 16 to chapter 3, verse 4. He says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, delighting in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations like do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. But are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let us now bow in a word of prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will strengthen us through your word. We pray, Father, you illumine this passage of Scripture and see how it rightly, rightly applies to us in our day and age. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Well, as you well know, whenever you go deer hunting, you look through the scope and you make sure that the deer is in the scope and then it's right there in the crosshairs and you pull the trigger. The metaphor I'm using right there, obviously, is that you want to look and see what's in the scope, what's in, the, in that vision. Well, in this particular passage of Scripture, what we see, Paul is looking through his scope here, and he sees a target, and he pulls the trigger, and he wants to knock it down and destroy it and get it out of the church. The best way I can understand to explain to you how this passage of Scripture applies to us and fits to us here. 2,000 years after this letter has been written here in Centerville, Mississippi, is to explain to you what is Paul looking at? 
What is Paul looking at in this scope? What is he trying to knock down? What is his enemy? And we've seen this in summary in, in, ser- in past sermons that he is addressing the Judaism of his day that is coming into this church. So what I want to do is walk through this passage of Scripture which explains the target that Paul is looking at. And then what we're going to see is there's just three negative commands. A negative command is don't do this. Okay, And there's three of them. And then Paul gets to the positive command in chapter 3 about having set, setting your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. So let's walk through this ne- these three negative commands that Paul is talking about and it helps explain what he's targeting here um, so that we don't misapply this passage of Scripture. He says this, first of all, in verse 16, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. In the Old Testament, especially if you look at Leviticus chapter 23, there were seven different festivals throughout the year for the Jews. There was a Passover, unleavened bread, the festival of Pentecost, trumpets, and the Day of Atonement, and also of tabernacles. And here, people are trying to go back and still trying to obligate Christians to have these Jewish ceremonies in the church. Paul also talks about the new moon. The new moon was the Jewish people in the Old Testament. They governed their festivals, their ceremonies, and their sacrifices by the moon and the cycle of the moon. And there was a new moon festival so that it would inaugurate a new, a new day on the calendar for their Jewish religious festivals and feasts. Also notice plurality. He says that there are Sabbaths. Plural, Sabbaths. Well, in the Old Testament, yes, you had the Sabbath day, but you also had Sabbath weeks. You had Sabbath years. There's different degrees and layers of Sabbaths of resting. And what he's targeting here, you can see this, he is targeting the people that come into the church to try to say, you need to have a Jewish identity. You need to continue in the way of Moses and the traditions of Moses. And Paul says, is say, essentially saying this, all that Mosaic tradition in Moses' law of all these festivals and religious traditions here was a shadow of something to come. A shadow is a good metaphor here. You know how you stand outside on this sunny day and you look at your shadow? The shadow just shows you the outline, the silhouette of who you are. The shadow is not the reality of you. It's just a a figure of you. This is kind of what Paul is pointing out here, that the Old Testament, it was all a shadow of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the New Testament, He comes and shows up, and that's why Paul says that all that in the Old Testament was a shadow of things to come, the substances of Christ. You can see what these people are being tempted to do. Paul knows that they had these Jewish people coming into church that think they know it all. They had this superior tradition, they think, And there's Gentiles in the church. And Paul says this, Don't let these Jewish people come in and judge you. In other words, when they look down upon you, when they want to judge you for not doing these things, have confidence in Christ. Have confidence that you are in the man, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus. But they're only in the shadow. So the command here, the negative command here, is don't let someone judge you with 
because of this outdated law. And the solution is have confidence in Christ. The second negative command is this, that is outlining the scope that Paul is looking at. He says this, the second negative command, verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Now what this means is to come and take something from you that belongs to you. A reward that belongs to you and someone's trying to steal it from you. Here the devil is trying to steal this reward from the Christians. And, it, and notice what he, how he outlines this. How are they trying to cheat them? Through, the, through delight, delight in false humility. The worship of angels. Intruding into things which he has not seen. Vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. There's four things he lists there. False humility, worship of angels, number two. The visions that he sees in his fleshly mind. And number four, he's not holding fast to head to the head, Jesus Christ. Now, what you can see here, the cheating here is a type of deception. Whereas in the first negative command, someone comes in and judges you, looks down upon you because you're not following their outdated rules and regulations. Here, he's given a negative command because the concern is this, deception. That these people are going to come in with a false humility. They're going to act all humble. And they're going to talk with a, hmm, a low voice like that and look down upon. Uh, try to, they're going to pretend to be humble. And they're going to talk about how, you know, the other night I had to, a dream and there was an angel that came and spoke to me in my dream. And I saw this angel and I really think his name was Gabriel. And many gullible Christians will listen to this rhetoric and go, man, that's a a high-standing Jew. He's very educated. He knows the Bible real well. And he has visions of angels. And, wow, I need to hear what he says. And then the guy says, well, you need to honor this Jewish tradition. And we're going to have the Feast of Tabernacles later in the season. And you need to have this circumcision and all this if you really want to be a true Christian. That's the type of rhetoric that's coming into the church. And that's why Paul says, these people are not holding fast to Christ. They're deceiving you. This is the message of the devil coming into the church. Uh, the reason why these Jewish people would have high, such, a, such a high regard for angels is because in the Old Testament, God used angels to give the law of Moses. We know this from Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. We know this from what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. We also know that in Hebrews chapter 1, when you read the first chapter in Hebrews... The primary concern there is that Jesus is superior to angels in Hebrews chapter 1. Because the Jewish people at this time in history, they had a fixation on angels. And in the New Testament, angels are being set aside. Especially when you see the book of Revelation, they're coming off their thrones. And humanity is being promoted above them. The Old Testament, Old Testament mediators, the angels are being set aside for the ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ. And so one of the big issues in the writings of the New Testament was to show the Jewish people that Jesus Christ is superior to angels. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. That's the Nicene Creed there. And so that's the argument of the apostles. And that's why these Jewish people are coming to church with this deceptive 
rhetoric leading people away from Christ. So the first negative command is don't let no, anyone judge you. The second negative command is don't let them cheat you. In other words, don't let them deceive you. The third negative command is do not live by outdated regulations. Do not live by outdated regulations. This is basically the summary. Look in verse, at verse um, 20. In verse 20, he says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. Let me pause right there. Some translations better say it this way. The elementary principles of the world. You died with Christ to all that. Let me pause another thing and say this. Here's a good commentary on this. It's basically the ABCs of the world. This is Paul's code language for Old Testament. The Old Testament is really easy to follow. If, if you lived back then, the priest would learn all this and apply it to you. He would take your animal and sacrifice it. And God's law, the Mosaic law, teaches you to look at the stars, look at the moon, and judge everything by that as far as your calendar. And just look at the world. Use the world, the ABCs of the world, because it's a time of immaturity. It's a time of childlike darkness. Just go through and learn about animals, learn about the, the, you know, the anatomy of these animals and sacrifice them. All of this is an elementary time. That's Paul's code language for Old Testament. He calls it the ABCs, the elementary principles of the world. So he says this, Christian, you've died to that. You've died to Old Testament regulations. Therefore, he says this, why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? And he gives a sample of them. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Now, what's in, what's in his scope here? What's in his scope is the book of Leviticus. When you look, read Leviticus chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, God basically says, do not taste, do not touch, and do not handle these things. The reason why is because these animals near the Old Testament were unclean. These animals here are clean. You can eat this. Also, the reason why animals were clean or, clean or unclean because it depended upon how they touched the ground. Some of them had a certain hoof or a certain type of natural shoe, and it protected them from the ground because God cursed the ground in the book of Genesis chapter 3. And so animals, by how they're touching the ground, depends upon whether they're cursed or not. And so when, as you know in the Old Testament, when God shows up, He tells Moses, Hey Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Why is it, why is it holy? Well, God's presence cleans that area, pushes the curse away. Now Moses can sit, stand barefoot, Stand barefoot with God on the ground. His presence is pushing away the curse. And so in the book of Leviticus, if you touched an unclean animal in a certain way or a dead animal, that deadness of the dead animal would pass on to you. Everything in the Old Testament, it's magnifying the curse on creation. And it's showing that, that death is contagious. That death is spreading and so this is why later in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 10, Peter, he really doesn't want to go meet this Gentile named Cornelius. Because Cornelius is a Gentile, and he's unclean. 
And God gives him this vision of all these animals that he can eat. And God says, Peter, the whole world is clean right now. I removed the curse. Things have changed. You can eat these animals. You can eat pigs and crawfish and all this. Just cook it real good. But the point is, is that he now is so clean. Jesus took all the curse on creation with his thorns on his brow. He suffered the curse. He removed the curse. And therefore now the world has been changed. So this is why Paul quotes this, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. It's referring to outdated regulations. This also gives you insight on the conversation with Eve and the wisdom that she had in the garden. Yes, God said, do not eat from that tree. Whenever she talked to the serpent, she said this, God told us not to touch it. And that is a legitimate reasoning from God's law, just like in Leviticus. Uh, You don't eat these animals. You don't touch those dead animals either. Eve understood the wisdom of Leviticus, even in that early part of history, in talking to the serpent. She wasn't wrongfully adding to God's law, as some people criticize her. She understood, if we're not supposed to taste it, yes, then we're not even supposed to touch it. So you can use Leviticus there to interpret Genesis chapter 3. But here's my agenda right now. I'm trying to explain to you what's in the scope of the Apostle Paul. He is addressing the outdated regulations of the Old Testament. Just like Jesus Christ, in His scope, oftentimes, is the Pharisees. They are trying to impose all these outdated regulations and are trying to add to them as well. Look at the additions that Paul talks about in verse 22. Look at Colossians 2.22. He says... All of these concern things which perish with the using. That's food. You eat this food and it dies in you. And you, you excrete it from your body. It's just, uh, it's just it's dead. It, it dies. And they perish according to the commandment and doctrines of men. This was Jesus' criticism to the Pharisees. He said, you're not teaching the law of God. You're teaching the doctrines of the elders, the doctrines of the commandments of men. And they were all hypocritical. And this is why Paul says the same language in verse 23. He says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body, but are no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So I hope I've articulated for you right now what is in the, the scope of the Apostle Paul through these three negative commands. Don't let them judge you. Don't let them cheat you. And do not live by outdated regulations. So what's the point of this? Let me summarize this. Here's a good summary of what Paul is articulating whenever you compare it with chapter 3. And that is this. Jesus' resurrection has changed the world. Therefore, times have changed. That's a good little summary of Colossians and the message of the gospel. Jesus' resurrection has changed the world. Therefore, times have changed. And here's what you learn about the devil about Satan in in Paul's scope that he's trying to shoot down. And that is, you can at least learn two themes or strategies that Satan tries to use to lure people away from Christ and bring them, their faith, away from Jesus Christ. Here is the first theme that you can see in Paul's scope that he's trying to shoot at of of a satanic strategy. Satan likes to do this. He tries to enforce the theme of returning back to Egypt. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. 
In the Exodus event, they go through the wilderness, God gives a Passover lamb, and God's leading them forward to a better future in the, in the future, in the, in the promised land. What is the temptation in the Old Testament there in the wilderness? Is that they want to go back to Egypt, go back to the old days. There was a time where it was good to be in Egypt, whenever Joseph went, was down there, when they were multiplying. But then it was time to leave the old days behind. It was time to grow up and get out of that, go through the Red Sea and get to the Promised Land. But the, oftentimes the people under Moses' care in the wilderness experience, they want to go back to Egypt. We see the same theme throughout the, throughout the Old Testament. And in the same way, you have this here in Colossians. The Jewish people, they want to go back to the old days. They want to go back to where it was safer and more secure there in a spiritual Egypt. Go back. Jesus has not changed things that much. Go back. So, you think about how that applies to you. There, there'll be times where you look back and say, yeah, I was really foolish when I did this uh, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. There may be an addiction you may have had at a time, and you, Satan is always tempting you to go back to your spiritual Egypt. This is how you can apply the scope. You see, you see what Satan is doing at this time in history with the Jews. He does the same thing with Christians today. Bring them back to the Dark Ages. Bring them back to some kind of spiritual Egypt that they came out of and put them back there. Here's another theme that you see, or a satanic strategy. And it's based upon a, a pervasive theme in the Old Testament that I talked about. And that is this, that in the Old Testament, there was really a fear of death. Because death was contagious, symbolically speaking. The animal died, you go and touch the animal, uh-oh, you're unclean. I've got some uncleanness because I touched that deadness. Now I've got to go to the priest and wash off. You're always concerned about what you touch, what you handle, what you taste, because all of this uncleanness is a sign of a fear of death. And Satan even likes to embellish upon that a fear of death. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Let me read this to you and you can see the application. He says, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 where he says that Jesus wants to destroy the devil. He wants to destroy the devil who has what? The power of death. And there's this fear of death that keeps people in bondage. And so whenever you see Paul's target that he's looking at in the book of Colossians, he's dealing with people who are going back to a history where there's this fear of death, there's this uncleanness everywhere, and they're trying to purify themselves of all these religious protocols that have been outdated, and it's basically a denial that Jesus Christ has conquered death. The way they're living, going back into history, it, they're basically saying that Jesus has not conquered the world. 
They're saying that Jesus has not purified the world and lifted the curse off the soil, that there's all these signs of death everywhere. The application you can see is that Satan, even today, wants us to live in a fear of death. But the gospel comes in and says, no, Jesus has actually changed the world. Jesus has actually outlawed all these old regulations that magnify death because he's conquered death. I think about this, and I thought about this quite a bit when I was watching the news, especially various videos on the internet showing the devastation in Afghanistan this past week. And I kept thinking about how the gospel comes and releases us from the fear of death. At the same time, there's people being killed right now as we speak over there who are left behind in Afghanistan. It made me think about how in Jesus, you see Jesus in the gospels and you see Jesus in the book of Revelation. Let me tie this together and show you how Jesus, what he is addressing to his apostles at his time, how these things apply to us, even in the book of Revelation. Notice this. There's a difference between what Jesus foretold his apostles in the Gospels versus Jesus' perspective that you have in the book of Revelation. What did Jesus foretell his apostles? He foretold his apostles that they were going to face some persecutions in Jerusalem, and he gave them a way of escape. It's interesting. He told them in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13 that they needed to get out of town when certain things started to happen. Flee to the mountains. It's your time to leave and get out. So in the Gospels, when Jesus is talking to his apostles, he gives them some wisdom to do the math of realizing that, listen, Preserve your life and leave and flee during those days of persecution, lest it be very devastating. That's a, a summary of Matthew chapter 24 and also um, Mark chapter 13. And we know from Christian history that a lot of Christians actually left Jerusalem in time and they went to a place called Pella to escape the persecution and the death. Well, that's what Jesus foretold in the Gospels. But then there's another perspective that Jesus gives us, and this is Jesus' perspective as well in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, in the city of Jerusalem, there's actually some saints who were converted, who became believers, but it was too late to leave the city. It was too late to leave the city, and they became a part of the 144,000 that are persecuted and martyred and killed. And in Jesus' perspective in the book of Revelation, the grapes are ripe, and the harvest is plentiful, and so they are simply harvested and taken up into heaven. And they are promoted and seated, and seated, they're sitting on thrones of Jesus Christ, and they conquer the beast. It's interesting whenever you see what Jesus foretold in his gospel is he actually is helping them escape death. But then there's those who are left behind in the city of Jerusalem where it's too late to leave. And in Jesus' vision there, or his perspective there, from the heavenly throne room, looking down, it is, he is simply promoting these saints up into glory. So you can say this. In the gospel, he gives them a way of escaping death preemptively. In the book of Revelation, he is emphasizing that there is no fear of death. Whenever you see the book of Revelation, it is encouraging Christians 
to actually go to their death. It is encouraging Christians to stand strong in the face of martyrdom and look forward to the great presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and being promoted all the way to the throne room. I thought about this and I was like, why is it? Why is the Bible like this where it encourages Christians with Jesus' perspective from heaven? And the answer is this, that Jesus Christ has conquered death so much. He's taken the sting out of death so much that in His providence, there are times where He allows Christians simply to go through martyrdom because in His perspective, death is no big deal anymore. He says, I have the keys to death and hell. He has conquered it. Therefore, He knows that His people can go through it because He went through it and He defeated, the de- he defeated death itself. This is the type of faith in the Bible. It's the faith that's hard for us American Christians to swallow. We're used to security, peace, law enforcement, a great military to protect us, and thank God for all those blessings. The first Christians did not have that. The apostles did not have any of that. They understood Jesus is going to give us some wisdom in His earthly life about how we can try to escape it. But there will be some times where they're caught on the Titanic, so to speak. There's no way out. Or they're caught in Nazi Germany. Or they're caught in Jerusalem. And there's no way out. And all they're looking at is a sword, a beheading, or a gun, or a bomb. And the only way out is through saving faith through death. Paul wants the Christians in Colossae to know Jesus Christ has removed all fear of death. All these symbols that that emphasize death, the uncleanness in the world, Jesus Christ has changed it all. And that's why he moves now to Colossians chapter 3. Turn back to Colossians chapter 3 and he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, the resurrected Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on the things on earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now let me answer a question. The question is this. What good is it to set your mind on things above and not on things on earth? The answer is it's very good because of this. You may think, well, are you saying that I shouldn't worry about things on earth? No, here's the point. When you have your mind on things above, when you have Jesus' perspective on all this suffering and all this persecution, and you're looking at Jesus' perspective in the book of Revelation, it gives you peace on earth. Faith does this. Faith helps you go into heaven, so to speak, and look down and say, no matter how it ends, I'm going to be all right. And think of that. If you don't have that perspective, you're going to have anxiety. You're going to have worry. You're going to have so much travail. You're going to have so much concern in your life. But if you can have, from Jesus' perspective, the way he looks at it, these are grapes being harvested. These are souls coming up to the throne room. When I die and and have suffering in the hospital, however it works, however my life ends, however your life ends, if you have Jesus' perspective, it gives you peace on earth. See, Paul is not trying to make you ignore the earth. He's trying to make you be fruitful in this life. So if you have Jesus' perspective and you understand that every time you come to worship on Sunday, we're coming to the risen Lord. And He's strengthening us. We're seated with Him. 
We're positioned with Him. It gives us a perspective, a, a viewpoint of all the sufferings of this world to know that, okay, it's all going to be fine. People who do not come to church and people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, they're looking for some type of perspective to give them healing. They're looking for some other God to make sense of it. Or they reject God and say, there is no God because look at all the sufferings and killings. But we know that, no, Jesus Christ has conquered death so much that we can rest in Him no matter how bad it gets. And that, that is what makes you peaceful and fruitful in this life, on this earth. So Paul is not trying to be what's called a Gnostic and say, oh, let's just forget about the earth and just not, you know, and, and neglect the material world. Paul wants you to be engaged in this world with a heavenly perspective that you are positioned in Christ. And with that, you can have confidence. You can have confidence that, no, that I'm not going to let these outdated laws judge me. I'm not going to let a deceiver cheat me from Christ. And I'm not going to let someone come with outdated regulations and impose them upon my life. I'm going to be secure in Christ. That fits Paul's scope of what he's addressing in his time. And you use that same type of imagery and application to apply it to us. It's because we need God's perspective on all this suffering. And this is why we come to church on Sunday to remember that we're in the throne room. We're in God's presence. And he gives us the faith to stomach all the evil we see in this world and say, yep, we're in Jesus Christ. We're going to rest in Him. And Jesus is going to take care of all this in His good providence. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give You thanks for our time together and for the, the faith that You strengthen us in. Father in Heaven, we pray that You'll be with all those around the world who don't live in peace and security like we live in. We pray, Father, You'll strengthen them with the truth of the Word of God and your presence with them. We pray, Father, you'll give us the wisdom that you gave the, the apostles in their day and age, the wisdom to live in, in a wise way, to avoid death at all possible, to escape at all possible. Also, Father, we pray you'll give us the faith that even the apostle John wrote about in the book of Revelation, having heaven's viewpoint on all sufferings we may face. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.